Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hey Jim, great to be back for the latest edition of the Other Hand podcast. Last few have been getting even more traction than usual, so a big thank you to all of our listeners, old and new. What a week it's been, Jim! Everywhere, both domestically and overseas, it seems that、uh, there are topics each of which could take at least one, if not more, podcasts. We've had the Bank of England in my country, where I'm sitting right now, tell us that the, the outlook is dreadful. There's a recession on the cards, and double-digit inflation is on the way, according to their forecasts. And despite all the skepticism that I have expressed in the past about forecasters and their forecasts, I have to say the Bank of England is very good at it, and that they are ones that I would pay a lot of attention to. Wouldn't believe necessarily 100%. They are, it must be said, at the pessimistic end of the spectrum, but they've raised interest rates, and they tell us that they are probably going to do so again. But there is. All sorts of subtleties and nuances around that, because a couple of the people on the Monetary Policy Committee weren't quite so sure that you wanted to signal future rate rises, because they think that the slowing economy, that recession that we're talking about, will do the job of higher interest rates. Others on the Monetary Policy Committee want the higher interest rates essentially to cause the recession to sit down on inflation. And the UK is in a particular bind because Brexit. Has made the problem worse. Both their fall in GDP, their economic outlook is worse because of Brexit. We've talked about that many times, and it is the case that inflation is worse in the UK because of Brexit. And Adam Posen of the Institute for International Economics in Washington DC spoke at a big Brexit conference this week and said 80% of the UK's inflation problem is down to Brexit. I think that's a bit on the high side, personally, but the UK, the UK is in a lot of trouble. 
I would love to say I told you so, but um, I won't. Further afield, we've had the Fed raise interest rates by a big 50 basis points in the jargon or half a percentage point. What does that all mean? The US and other stock markets taking their cue from the US have been all over the place this week, up by huge amounts, down by huge amounts, and just lots and lots of volatility, but mostly with a downward trend. And I know that we've had some domestic news, Jim, from Ireland on in terms of both the exchequer returns and the labor market. So before we get into the entrails of what's happening globally, because that's going to affect both our countries, because we're both small open economies, Jim, and what happens internationally is going to arrive on our shores. I'm going to start by suggesting that Ireland's starting point is much, much better than the UK's starting point for this international gale that we are facing. And the first piece of evidence I will give you for uh, Ireland's fantastic position relative to the UK are those exchequer returns. So over to you, mate. Yeah, Chris, I'm a bit confused, I have to say, at the moment, not for the first time in my professional life. I look at the international indicators that we've discussed the last podcast and that we're going to discuss later today. Uh, They're all giving cause for concern. Interest rates rising, bond yields rising significantly. Uh, the U.S. 10-year over 3% for the first time in quite a while. Equity markets under huge pressure and huge volatility at the moment. Inflationary pressures continue to build. Some economic indicators, not all, suggesting global economic slowdown. And then we have the Ukraine situation and everything that's falling out of that. So globally, there's a lot to be concerned about at the moment. A lot of headwinds coming, or well, not coming our way. They're already the headwinds are already there. But then you look at the Irish economic situation and um, every piece of data we continue to get, apart from sentiment surveys, are suggesting very strong levels of economic activity. Uh, We got the labour market data for April showing that unemployment fell by 58,800 in the year to April, an unemployment rate of 4.8% of the labour force. That's down from 7.5% a year ago. Uh, The unemployment rate for males at 4.9%, for females. So that's indicative of a very, very strong labour market. Um, It's indicative of an economy approaching full employment. And of course, there are no surprises there because one of the things everybody I talk to in every sector of the economy at the moment is talking to me about labour shortages Um, I was with a professional services firm uh, recently who were suggesting one unit was suggesting if they could hire another 100 employees in the morning, they would, but they can't. So a very, very hot labor market here. Um, Then, as you say, we have the exchequer returns for the first four months of the year. Uh, Just to throw out some of the headline numbers, a deficit of 1.1 billion in the first four months that's down from 7.6 billion a year ago. And the deficit does hop around a lot from month to month because of, um, you know, there are certain months when there's a lot of government spending and perhaps tax revenues aren't as strong as in other months. So it it does vary from month to month, but there's been a significant trend decline in the deficit. And that trend decline is being primarily driven by what continues to happen on the taxation front um, overall taxes in the first four months, 21.1 billion. That's 31% ahead of a year earlier. 
which is equivalent to an annual increase of, wait for it, 5 billion euro, an incredible amount of money. And the three key headings that make up about 84% of taxation, absolutely booming, flying ahead. Income tax, 9.5 billion, up 19.4% on April of last year. That's an increase of over one and a half billion. VAT, which is related to consumer spending in the main, up, well, over six billion collected, an increase of 29.1%. That's an increase of 1.4 billion on a year ago. And then the third element, which is corporation tax, 2.3 billion collected, up by 299.9% on a year earlier. That's an increase of 1.7 billion. Okay, these are incredibly strong tax revenue numbers. And of course, there is no better um, indicator of economic activity than taxation because every time we move, we pay tax for the privilege of doing so. The more we move, the more tax we pay. So economic activity is generating this extreme tax revenue buoyancy. Um, the Department of Finance, as it has done for the last three or four months, has come out and basically telling us, don't read too much into all of this. There are significant timing issues that make year-on-year comparisons um, difficult. And of course, this time last year, the economy was in virtual lockdown. So perhaps you might think there is some justification for that sort of warning. But what I did today, I looked at um, those three tax headings, income tax, VAT, corporation tax, in the first four months of this year, and I compared them to the first four months of 2019, just before COVID. And um, income tax is 37% higher, VAT is 21% higher, and corporation tax is 266.7% higher. And indeed, overall taxation is 35.8% higher. So I actually don't buy in the main this notion about uh, timing issues having a, a significant distortionary effect on this. Uh, the underlying picture is very clear. The economy is still growing very strongly despite all of the international headwinds. That is generating considerable tax revenue buoyancy. And it brings me back to an argument I've made several times to you on this podcast and elsewhere um, about this this whole argument about um, economy and society. You know, I've, I've always believed that it is impossible to create a society unless you create an economy. And um, the thing we're seeing very clearly is that a, a well-functioning economy, which Ireland definitely is at the moment, is generating considerable tax revenues. Those tax revenues are going to fund public expenditure in areas like social protection, health, education, and so on. So maintaining and sustaining strong domestic economic activity is absolutely vital to generate the resources that help go towards creating a functioning society. So um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a very upbeat picture. But as I said at the beginning, Chris, um, I am a bit confused because, you know, Ireland is definitely flying in the face of a lot of international concerns at the moment. There's no doubt about that. And uh, can this continue? That's what I'm pondering at the moment. Obviously, I'm going to say I don't know. I'm also going to say it all depends. And there are lots of things that it's going to depend on. Um, 
I think if IMF World Bank economic forecasts that have been released in recent days prove correct, then it should be okay. I think you'll get away without a global recession, not without a global slowdown, which is clearly happening, but you'll you'll get away without a global recession. But the sort of growth numbers globally for the the operating environment, the business environment, if you like, for Ireland um, is okay on the basis of those IMF World Bank forecasts. If the IMF and World Bank are wrong, if, you know, all of us are wrong, that in fact we are starting out going to get close to and into a global recession, that's going to be very difficult for Ireland, I suspect, and uh, for both the domestic and the multinational sector. That said, I suspect that Ireland is, as I said right at the top of the show, relatively well positioned. And I, I, I don't know about you, Jim, but I'd be more concerned about the domestic sector of the economy than the multinationals, because the multinationals, although, of course, they won't be immune from a global recession, the sort of businesses that they are in, uh, you know, think, I'm thinking not just the tech side, but including tech, but all of the pharmaceuticals and all of the other businesses that we know are in Ireland, they are not the violently cyclical businesses that will be buried in a global recession. The one area that I do worry about from a whole host of angles, but traditionally at least, or historically at least, is incredibly cyclical, of course, is the property market. And the question arises that if the IMF and World Bank forecasts are wrong, we are heading into a global recession, is the property market globally going to crack? And therefore, will Ireland and the UK's property market crack? I don't know. I am really fascinated to see Toronto, the Canadian property market over the last few years, makes the point that I've made several times on this podcast that the house price issue, the pricing issue as part of the housing crisis problem is a global one. If you think you've got a house price issue in Ireland, take a look at Canada. It is extraordinary. It's eye-watering stuff, what's going on there. But like the Australians, like the Americans, like the British, guess what the Bank of Canada has been doing? Putting up interest rates. And guess what? Their property market has turned. The Toronto market, the air looks as if it might, just might be coming out of the bubble. And if that's the canary in the coal mine or the leading indicator for what's going to happen to other very overheated property markets, not least in the United States, but also the United Kingdom, but also Ireland, then that's the, the, the one part of the economy that I worry about because it obviously is overextended, overvalued and just nuts everywhere, not just in Ireland. It's ripe for doing what the NASDAQ has just done over the course of the last year, for example. I mean, we've had a stock market crash in the United States. The NASDAQ has crashed. And um, I think that the housing market, if there is something else that will follow the NASDAQ down because of similar reasons, overvaluation, overextension, it's going to be housing. And that's a global point. And if, of course, we, know, we all know what happens when the housing market goes, it brings other sectors with it, you know, because there's an awful lot of people involved, not least building and construction workers, but also the people that supply them. It has strong domestic multiplier effects. And last time around, of course, it had a big effect on the banks. We hope that the banks are more resilient to this sort of thing now. But my worries are more about what happens to the domestic economy than the international side, Jim. I don't know about your economic analysis, what, what you think about that that idea yeah I, I think the, uh, the the multinational side of the economy is an incredibly strong anchor uh, whatever 278,000 people employed directly over 200,000 other jobs indirectly dependent on those uh, and man, many of those are in the SME sector stroke the indigenous economy 
So, um, and, you know, certainly the pharma part of that um, is not cyclical. Um, That's pharma as in pharmaceutical as opposed to agricultural farmers. Uh, Oh, yeah, pharma. I beg a pharmaceutical, I beg a pardon, not farmers. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm just teasing you, Jim, don't worry. But but, but anyway, if you look at the social media companies, um, you know, there has to be some vulnerability there because they're clearly very dependent on advertising revenue and in a cyclical downturn, advertising revenue tends to suffer. Uh, so they wouldn't be immune. But I, but I would agree with you. Um, I wouldn't be concerned about the multinational side of the economy. Uh, it is the indigenous side you would be concerned about. And um, indigenous companies are facing a lot of pressures here at the moment, uh, not least the labor cost and the labor availability issue. Um, many businesses are finding it incredibly difficult to hire and hold on to workers at the moment. And um, I know you were in Dublin earlier this week, but uh, we're seeing a lot of restaurants now that are not opening on Monday and Tuesday because of staffing issues. Um, you know, so there's, there's, there's lots of stuff going on. And then if you superimpose on top of that, um, a lot of those external headwinds and um, the whole global supply chain issue, etc., uh, it's it's causing a problem. I was talking to one indigenous business yesterday uh, that imports a lot of raw material from overseas, and he was saying that it's it's okay. The price is rising significantly, but that's not his biggest concern. His biggest concern is actually the availability. Um, he'd be prepared to pay uh, to a limit, obviously, uh, whatever price he has to pay. But it's the availability is the big problem. And, um, you know, at a global level, I, I, I saw Volkswagen in the last couple of days suggesting that um, it won't be able to supply any more EVs to uh, the European and US markets because of um, supply difficulties. So, yeah, you'd have to have some concerns. But lo- looking at the housing market, which is, 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 is the one that garners um, probably most attention in this country, given our preoccupation with same um, house price inflation has been absolutely rocketing since about June 2020. Uh, it was interesting in 2019, uh, the housing market was starting to lose air. It was starting to moderate. And at that stage, the justification for that moderation was affordability. In other words, house prices had reached such an elevated level. Um, and given that the central bank is significantly restricting um, mortgage lending and the amount of money you can borrow. Uh, basically, the housing market had sort of found a natural ceiling and was starting to moderate. And um, in 2019, I welcomed that. I thought it was good to see because um, I don't believe on any level that rapidly escalating house prices could possibly be described as uh, an economic good or indeed a social good. But then COVID hit in early 2020. Um, for the first three months of lockdown, house prices retreated, bottomed out in June 2020, and then took off. And they've continued to escalate dramatically since then. Um, and we're looking at the most recent data showing house prices growing 14, 15% per annum, depending on what part of the country you're looking at. Um, if you extrapolate that forward over the next 12 months, um, I have mixed feelings about it, okay. Um, at one level, that affordability issue is still there. You know, house prices have reached even more elevated levels. The central bank's mortgage lending restrictions remain in place and the central bank ain't of a mind to 
change those mortgage lending rules despite some pressures from certain interest groups. And um, that would suggest that perhaps uh, you would see some significant moderation in house prices. On the other hand, pardon the podcast pun, but on the other hand, um, estate agents tell me that you're still seeing a lot of people coming in with cash. Um, and, and there's a lot of cash driving the market. And at the end of March, we had about $142 billion in household savings in the banking sector, which is by far the highest level of savings we've ever had in this country. So there's a lot of cash out there in the system. Um, and, and, and there's a few reasons for that. But one is that there's a segment of the workforce that actually has done really well over the last couple of years. They've continued to earn uh, there was an inability to spend because of COVID restrictions. Um, and a lot of people are now sitting on decent wads of cash that are finding their way into the housing market. And of course, those people who are dependent on mortgages and borrowing are finding it really difficult to compete with those who are coming in as cash buyers. Um, so <laughs> what does it all mean? I, I wish I knew, Chris, but my sense would be, and logic would suggest, and I would hasten to add, that logic cannot always be dependent on in our world of economics. But logic would suggest that over the next 12 months, you should see a moderation in house price inflation. I hope we do. I think it's absolutely essential, but um, no guarantees. You've just broken the first rule of forecasting, Jim, uh, which is don't make one. The, the second rule of forecasting is if you're going to say something's going to happen, don't ever put a date on it. Um, and you've you've just done that. You've said over the next year. I'm re I'm reminded of because uh, I mentioned the Canadian property market a little while ago. Uh, about five years ago, a friend of mine in Ireland, living in Ireland, um, was Canadian, moving back to Toronto, and they asked me what I thought about the Canadian property market and was it a good idea, given that they were going back to Toronto, to buy a house. And I looked and I thought and I said, no, it probably isn't. Luckily for them they completely ignored my advice because for the it looked crazy nuts valuation wise you know completely balmy in terms of uh, the usual way in which we measure property prices and valuation it looked nuts to me 5 years ago and and they went back and they bought a house and um of course what happened next was that for five for five for 5 years the, the toronto property market has just kept on going up and up and up but not in the last few months. And that's all that I'm pointing to there, that it may only be the last two months. What do I know? But I would be confident that without knowing when the air is going to come out of this property bubble, it is another one, and um, it will at some point deflate. I think, I think the higher interest rates that we're going to see um, will cause that. And the extent to which the bubble is deflated will be determined by the extent to which interest rates go up. And that's another call that you know nobody really knows how big and how long this inflation problem is going to last. So, um, Chris, you have, sorry, you, you have argued to me many times about the correlation between bond yields and house prices globally, and you've cited Bank of England research to that effect. And, of course, you know, bond yields have increased very significantly over the last six months in percentage terms. So that, that would suggest... Um, the air coming out of the market. Um, well, long-term mortgages yesterday, long-term mortgage rates in the States, now they're the leading indicator here, they're the leading economy, they're the, pro the, you know, the economy with one of the biggest inflation problems, yada, yada, yada. 
Long-term mortgage rates in the States yesterday hit 5.6%. Now imagine Ireland with a 5.6% mortgage rate, Jim. Uh, not convinced that that would be very good for the housing market. And I'm not saying that's coming. I'm not saying that 5.6% is going to like it. I mean, who knows? It could go higher in the States. But it's, it's certainly having an impact in the States. And I think that um, some of the higher frequency indicators from the States say that some of the heat is coming out of the mortgage bubble, at least. Yeah, Chris, it's in our, in our world, uh, okay, we, we depend a lot on published data, um, and that's really important. But I, I have always um, paid a lot of attention to sort of anecdotal evidence, what I'm seeing out there and what people are telling me. It doesn't always work, but I, I think it's always interesting. And um, I was talking to my favorite estate agent down the country this afternoon, who was telling me that she is now seeing a lot of people coming forward who were sort of contemplating selling property but were hanging on because prices were continuing to rise. They're starting to get a little bit panicky now and have they missed the boat? And you're starting to see more supply coming on the market. And of course, when you see more supply coming on the market like that, uh, the the possibility is that it becomes self-reinforcing. I remember during the last housing bubble, which wasn't that long ago, Jim, quite a few people I know sold up because they agreed with people like me that the housing prices were nuts and that it was time to cash in. And of course, um, the housing bubble went on for, sometimes for years after they sold up. They were eventually proved right, but they that example demonstrates that you just can't get the timing of this thing right. I think that it's right to, to think about being cautious about the property market but when it'll actually happen um, is is much more difficult to pin down. But certainly, if I was th- if, you know, if I was thinking that I'm going to be selling property in Britain or Ireland actually over the next year or two, all of this would make me more inclined to say mm, I'm going to do it now rather than later, sooner rather than later. That that's about it. Um, but again, this is not financial advice, particularly when it comes to housing. I think it's always very important when people ask me about house prices and what they should do. Should they sell now? Should they buy now? Whatever it is that they're doing. It's not like buying shares you know, when you, for your savings. It's not, these are not purely financial decisions. They are decisions that involve so many other aspects of our lives. But yes, the financing of it is critically important. But you've got to ask yourself, um, can I afford this house? Um, will I be happy here? Will I care afterwards if house prices go up or down if I bought this house? Um, if, I get it, if I'm going to sell a house and I get it wrong and house prices continue going up, what am I going to do then? So it's very important not to expose yourself to too many risks um, because you know, this is about people's lives as much as it is about their finances. And um, get, get both sides of it right if you can. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Chris, I... Irish meant- unemployment, Jim. We were yeah. going to talk about that. Yeah, I mentioned Irish unemployment. Um, you know, as I said, an unemployment rate of 4.8%, effectively a fully employed economy, are very close to it at this stage, in a sense that anybody willing and able to work um, is probably able to get work at the moment. Okay, so, um, and, and that's the other strange thing that's happening at the moment. Uh, you know, at a global level, we've mentioned all the headwinds, the seriously worrying headwinds that are out there. Uh, but yes, we got the April non-farm payrolls, that's the employment report in the United States this afternoon, an increase of 428,000 in the month of April. Uh, that was stronger than expectations. And it was also the 12th straight month of job gains in excess of 400,000. 
and the unemployment rate is now back at 3.6% of the labor force, which is the lowest US unemployment rate since February 2020, just before COVID-19. So we're seeing, um, and this we've spoken about this phenomenon in, in many different countries, but you know the US labor market is very much on fire at the moment and labor shortages, uh, the sorts of issues we're seeing here in Ireland are very much part of the US jobs market as well. So there is no indication yet that these global headwinds are feeding into the labor market situation. And given that the Federal Reserve increased interest rates by half of 1% this week, and given that they're suggesting or pointing towards uh, the certainty that rates will rise a lot further over the coming months, uh, this labor market report today will actually strengthen that resolve on the part of the Federal Reserve. Uh, because clearly there's a lot of questioning of central bankers and be amongst central bankers about the wisdom of increasing interest rates, given all of the uncertainties are out there at the moment. But from the Federal Reserve's perspective, any qualms it might have had about the interest rate decisions it's taken over the last couple of meetings, I think will have been quelled by today's employment report. The US labor market is on fire. Uh, wage inflation is picking up. And um, I, I also heard an interesting um, one of one of the podcasts that, apart from the other hand, that I, I listen to a lot, and that's one of my favorites, obviously, um, is the Daily and the New York Times. And they had a really interesting one this week about the growing power of trade unions in the United States. And um, the last time we saw this sort of growth in trade union membership in the States was the 1930s. So uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's indicative of something happening in the U.S. labor market, but it's also indicative, I think, of um, significant upside potential for wages in the U.S. economy. And of course, that will then feed into uh, the Federal Reserve's thinking. Yeah, I saw um, one of our favorite bloggers, uh, not so much a podcaster, but a blogger, Noah Smith, whom we've mentioned on this pod many times in the past. We're both fans of his, of his written work in particular. Uh, not forecasting, but musing on the possibility that the market is completely wrong when it comes to US interest rates, that on the sort of outlook that we talk about here, where things are not great, but okay, US interest rates finish the year at 3%. He wrote something this week positing that um, or suggesting musing about 8% interest rates by the end of the year, or perhaps next year. And it's scary stuff, because if, if you can imagine a scenario like that, it's because inflation has taken off and has not uh, in any way been affected by the rate rises that we've seen and the sort of rate rises that are currently priced in, which, as I say, take the US short term interest rate to about 3% next at the end of this year. If inflation has continued to accelerate and it looks like it's out of control, that means a scenario like 8% interest rates comes into the frame, and in which case we are, I think, in very deep doo-doo, which is a technical economics term from all sorts of perspectives. That is global recession territory, that is stock market crash territory, or certainly stock market correction territory, in my opinion, um, at risk of making forecasts. Uh, and I think that's what's got a lot of people spooked. I think that's what got, that's got the stock market spooked this week, is that the downside scenario which was kind of on the horizon, you know, or people glimpsing it as a possibility, as a, you know, 
scenario C rather than scenario A or B. But it's each day that we get extra data, extra pieces of information, all the way through to Europe, who I think only a few weeks ago, Jim, we were saying, will there or won't there be an interest rate rise this year? I can't remember which side of the debate each of us was on now. But one of us said no, one of us said yes. And now it seems that we're being told there's going to be a rate, rate hike in July. Is, and is, is that right? In the euro area? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. I, I was the one that believed the upside potential for European rates was greater than you did, okay? I knew and, you'd I, remind me of that. Absolutely. I may, I may be proved wrong. There's still a distance to go. It's interesting, Chris, what's happening on currency markets as well. Um, the dollar, you know, remains very strong against the yen. It's gone over 130, which is the strongest dollar against the Japanese currency in quite some time. And euro dollar is approaching 105. And I see some commentators starting to talk about the possibility of parity in the dollar euro relationship. And that is based on the strength of the U.S. economy, the fact that the U.S. interest rate trajectory is much stronger than the European one um, and that European economic growth is lagging the states, that interest rates haven't increased yet and are not likely to go up by as much as anything like as much as in the United States. So that all suggests a stronger dollar against the euro. Um, and, and another interesting move on exchange rate markets, uh, there has been a dramatic movement in sterling over the last few weeks against the dollar particularly. And if you translate that into dollar euro, we were looking at 83 pence to the euro a few weeks ago. Um, I just checked before we came on air. Um, it's trading at 85.78 at the moment. You know, that's nearly a three pence decline in the value of sterling over a very short period of time. Um, and, the, but you know, what the Bank of England was saying, accompanying the rate increase uh, yesterday, is clearly a factor there, I would have thought. Uh, but what about UK politics? Um, we would appear to be seeing, you know, Boris in a spot of bother at the moment, if you want to call it that. A bit of bother. I'm not sure about how much. We've got some local election results coming in as, as we're speaking, and uh, the Conservatives have been given a bit of a kicking, but I don't think it's going I don't think it's going to damage him, but only because nothing has damaged him so far. Every single thing that has happened to Johnson over the last couple of years, I would have thought in advance would have damaged him. It hasn't. I've been wrong. He survived. So that's the model I'm going forward, Jim. If if it turns out that, you know, Johnson takes a 12-barrel shotgun and starts randomly killing people on Whitehall outside, or in Downing Street outside his front door, I'm going to forecast that he survives, Okay. So you, you get my general forecasting model for Johnson and British politics. The one bigger mystery than Johnson's survival is the behaviour of sterling, because um, the UK economy is clearly suffering as a result of all of the things that all of the world economies are suffering from. I think it's suffering by more um, because of things like Brexit. It's got toxic domestic politics. Um, the mystery to me is why sterling has been so strong. And um, as uh, I quoted Adam Posen uh, at the top of the show, and another great quote from him is that the UK is the only economy in modern or ancient economic history that has decided to have a trade war with itself, um, which you kind of get where he's coming from when he says that. Uh, so when you put all of the things that we say about Britain's uh, economy, Britain's politics, Britain's society, actually, 
Um, I just wonder why sterling has held up or has indeed increased in the way that it has in recent months. So uh, that's been the surprise for me. The fact that sterling is going down doesn't surprise me at all. Um, I've absolutely no idea where it was going, where it is going. But if you pin me to the wall and say, give me a currency forecast for selling, I would say it deserves to be an awful lot lower, a bit like house prices, if you know what I mean. I think that the fundamentals, as we say, would justify our sterling being a lot lower than it is now against both the dollar and the euro. Yeah. Chris, do we pay too much attention to UK politics and ignore the fact that in many other respects, you know, the Ukraine is an UK is an incredibly dynamic place in the sense that, you know, it's, it is still at the cutting edge of scientific exploration, at the cutting edge of technological development, at the cutting edge of education. Uh, the UK does a lot of stuff very well. I mean, you mentioned the Bank of England's record as an economic forecaster. So th- there's, there's a huge sort of anomaly within the UK yeah, I'd call it more of a curate's egg. It's good in parts. Uh, the, the, you know, it's got some of the best universities in the world, as you, as you rightly say. Um, it's got some of the worst high schooling in the world if, in, in terms of those famous PISA results. It, it's secondary education, state secondary education in particular, is pretty poor. Um, it's got, although it's got fabulous universities, they are incredibly elitist and very uh, socially stratified. And, you know, people, um, it's, you know, in Ireland, yes, I know you've got a hierarchy of universities, but it's pretty flat. It's not, you don't get people, parents, before their children are even born, devising strategies and saving money designed solely to get their kids into Oxford or Cambridge. You don't have that kind of equivalent thing going on in Ireland, or at least if you do not know any to the same extent. You You do at secondary school level. Well, you know, to get... Oh, you do, Chris, you do. Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but to what end? I mean, is it... Is it I, anyway, uh, I think that it, having lived in both countries, I think the situation is, is, is a bit different here. You know, I, there, there are public schools in England now that cost you 50 grand a year. Um, you, I don't think there are too many of those in Ireland, are there? No, 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 absolutely not. I, I would say that the typical private secondary school here is probably between five and 10 grand a year. Yeah, uh, I, I know Clongos is a bit more when there when there are boarding schools and boarding involved. But anyway, um, I think you're right to say that people like me bang on about the negativities of the UK a lot, and I think everything that I say is true. But um, it's my podcast, so I can say what I like, and I don't have to be like the BBC or RTE and balanced in my comments. Um, but one thing I should say, we're running out of time. One thing I want to own up to, and a great friend of the podcast, Mark, has commented um, very nicely and politely and constructively um, after our last podcast to say that I actually got something wrong. I'm, wow. glad, you're, I'm glad you're sitting down now, Jim. Um, yes, when I said that the Shinners had dropped their wealth tax proposal, um, I had misread the Shinners budget submission for budget 2022 last year. And on some of their tax pages, they didn't include the wealth tax proposal, but buried towards the end of their document. That's no defense. I should have read it. There it is. The wealth tax is still there. A tax on wealth above a net one million. Um, We're going to have a lot more to say about these and other people's budget proposals the nearer we get to budgets and indeed Irish general elections. But uh, we'll leave it there for now with my mayor culpa. Thanks, Jim. I'm stunned into silence, Chris.
You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.